This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger speaks with Mr. William Isaac, who served as the chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, from 1981 to 1985. They discuss the ongoing federal budget and debt crisis and the role that the FDIC plays in protecting Americans' financial security. Bill Isaac, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, you were chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, affectionately known as FDIC, from 1981 to 1985. Those are golden years here at the Reagan Institute. Of course, those were the years of the Reagan administration and then subsequent to your time on the FDIC as its chair for those years. Uh, you founded a, a regulatory consulting firm, the Secure Group, and then now later became part of the FDI Consulting Corp. And you engage with that as well as speak regularly and write regularly on financial and regulatory issues. Let's start with the background and how you got into the world of the FDIC to work with the Reagan administration in the 80s. Looking back on that, Bill, tell us a little bit about what were the most important lessons and experiences you gained from your time in the FDIC and in our conversations off air, it was a pretty heady time in terms of bank failures and the like. So what we're dealing with today is the sort of thing that you've had some experience working on in the past. Anyway, I, I started with a very large law firm in Milwaukee and it was a, a great firm and I had a good time. And after about four, five years, <clears throat> I decided I'm not sure I want to be a lawyer, but I'm they had me practicing banking law, so if I'm going to be in banking, I might as well go into banking. So I joined a, a bank in Louisville, Kentucky, the largest one in, in Kentucky. And I was vice president, general counsel, and head of government relations and a few other things. And so, again, I'm involved in politics. In fact, Mitch McConnell, uh, who's today the in the Senate, we all know him, but he was a a youngster back then, and he came to me because I had I had worked in the in the '72 Nixon campaign, and I had also worked for Bob Caston, who ran for the Senate in Wisconsin, and he won. Uh, so I, I had some political background, and Mitch McConnell sought me out, and he said, "I'm going to run for for county judge, which was the, like county chief executive in in Jefferson County, Kentucky." Uh, and I understand you have a lot of experience in politics. Will you help me? So I agreed to help him. Wow, that's early on support for Mitch McConnell. Okay, look at that. Yeah. Go back a ways. <laughs> and I, so I, I helped him, and and he got he, he got elected to county judge, and that before long he ran for senate and he won. So I'm having some success in my political activities. <laughs> and anyway, I was general counsel and a few other things for the bank, and and I was in charge of government relations and. The guy who ran government relations for me uh, was an ardent Democrat, and uh, I said to him, his name was Leonard, and I said, Leonard, I'm thinking I really would like to do government service. And you know this guy, Jimmy Carter, who uh, was just elected president, but, and, and he's, he's the, the, the FDIC has a three-member board, uh, bipartisan. And the Republican member's leaving because he's chairman and he's not going to be chairman anymore. Um, I think it'd be fun to try to be the, the, uh, appointed to the FDIC board by Jimmy Carter. 
And I said, it, it, it can't happen. I'm too, way too young. I was 33, way too young. So it can't happen. But why don't we try and see how it works? So you're 33 years old. You've been uh, general counsel, vice president for a bank, and have your eye on the FDIC. And you go to your government affairs colleague who's got the connection with the card administration. You figure you just throw your hat in the ring to, to, to just test it out, not to have any expectation of becoming a member of the FDIC. Absolutely spot on. <laughs> and, and I said, I, I'm way too young to get to be appointed, but I want, I want to see how the process works. So when I am old enough, I can get appointed. That was, that was the, my exact words. <laughs> so and then what happens? <laughs> I got appointed. I, 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 ch I chased the car and I caught it. <laughs> what am I going to do with it now? <laughs> And so you find yourself on the board of the FDIC yeah. during the Carter administration. And, and what did you find when you landed there? Well, it was interesting because the first day on the job, I was I went to a going away dinner party at the, at the bank uh, and uh, had a dinner party. The next morning, I got up and I went to a, bank, uh, a hotel across the street from the bank and met the FDIC's executive secretary who had flown to Louisville from Washington. Uh, to swear me in. So we he swore me in in the lobby of a hotel, and we took off in a cab to go to the airport and fly to Puerto Rico, where the second largest bank on the island was failing. And I was there on behalf of the FDIC to oversee this event. Uh, there were two other <laughs> directors um, uh, on the FDIC board at that time. Neither one of them was available to go to Louisville, so I went. And here at the age, I was 34 now, I had turned 34. At the age of 34, my first day on the FDIC job was to handle the, the failure uh, of a bank. I think it was called Banco Credito, uh, second largest bank in Puerto Rico uh, at the age of 34. That was my first day on the job. Drinking from a fire hose, wow. And, and that was not your last failure <laughs> that you were called in as a member of the FDIC, either board or, or chair. To address this was, I'm not sure what the right word is, rampant, common um, during your time in the FDIC, and so you really developed an understanding of the tools and the sorts of regulations that are required to prevent this sort of thing and to manage them when it happens. Yeah, it was it was it was an amazing experience. Um, I'll forever be grateful that I had it. I mean, it was such a challenge. And it was all it was all doing the right things for the right reasons. Uh, and what, what a what a great way to start a career. That uh, wasn't exactly at the start, but it was pretty close to the start of a career that has lasted for over 50 years now. And uh, I really felt like I was doing something really meaningful. And uh, uh, I I look back on my life with uh, nothing but uh, a great deal of satisfaction trying to do the right things the right way for the right reasons and and uh, be a service to the country. And I actually uh, very much appreciate that Jimmy Carter appointed me. And I thought he was a good man and, and he's still alive. So he's a, still a good man. But then I had this awesome experience of being in office at the FDIC when Ronald Reagan was elected president and appointed me to be chairman of the FDIC. And my thought was I'd go to I'd go to Washington 
serve a couple years uh, in the Carter administration, be a little bit bored because not, you know I wasn't chairman and not, not much was happening, and then I'd move on to back to, back to the banking industry and do something else. Or well, you got that very wrong, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I really did in, in the best possible way. <laughs> Tell us about kind of the, the number of bank failures you had to manage. What was going on during those turbulent years in the U S economy in the late seventies, early eighties, when Reagan came to office and, and the tools the FDIC brought to the table to manage it, because as you've been writing about on the Hill and the wall street journal and elsewhere, you know, this is our not, this is not the first time the United States and our regulatory agencies have had to encounter uh, banks, regional banks or otherwise, uh, that fail. And there's a bit of history here that's relevant uh, to what we're encountering today. Tell us about what you were seeing back in those days during the FDIC and what you did substantively mm -hmm. to address the, the failures uh, that, of, of, of some of these banks. Mm -hmm. Well, the banking industry had a major calamity happen to it. Oh, the whole country did in, in the 1930s. Um, we had uh, the Great Crash and the Great Depression, um, in which about a third of the banks in the country failed uh, in the first couple of years of the Depression. It was so bad that we had to declare a bank holiday. Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, yeah. declared a bank holiday, shut all the banks down, and and uh, then started to gradually reopen them uh, after examining each bank and making sure it was it was okay. Um, they they started opening the, the banks and starting the business up again. In the process of doing that, they decided we we'd had various state banking. Um, FDICs. In other words, there were deposit insurance companies in the various states, but there was no federal system. And almost all of the federal, all of the state banking system, uh, deposit insurance systems failed uh, a number of times. In other words, they had we had a number of recessions and things over the years, and each time the the state systems would would fail because they didn't have enough diversity. They might have been located in Kansas, where all of the almost all the loans are agricultural type loans. And so, when there was an agricultural problem, all of the banks got in the same troubles at the same time, and they failed. We needed a much bigger, broader, uh, more diversified insurance system, and that would be a federal deposit insurance system. And that's what the Congress decided to um, enact in 1933. So that created the FDIC. The FDIC was pretty busy during that period, but before long, um, all the problems were pretty much resolved, and and the government put in place very tight regulations: who could own a bank, where the bank could operate, what the banks could do. Uh, very highly regulated because they didn't want anybody to fail, so they didn't want them to take any risks. Um, so it wasn't a very responsive banking system, but it was safe. It, it didn't, it, banks didn't fail left and right. And that's, we went through the 40s. Of course, the World War was a big deal in the 40s, but the 40s and the 50s and even the 60s, there wasn't much turmoil in the banking industry because it was so tightly regulated and, and banks were not allowed to compete in the place where uh, investment banks were competing. 
but they couldn't compete against SNLs or thrifts, which were doing home lending, and, and credit unions were doing something else. So, so it was a very you didn't really have these huge diversified, not these huge banks that were in all assets and 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 types of banking, right? That those who were, you know, you're you're holding deposits from uh, businesses and the like, and you were not going to be able to go ahead and get engaged in investment banking, for example. Nobody was supposed to take a lot of risk, and nobody did until we started to get frisky in the 1960s. Plus, you had all of the Vietnam stuff going on, and there was massive government spending without, without any tax implications. In other words, we didn't, care about, we didn't care about balancing budgets and having responsible fiscal and monetary policies. We cared about winning a war, plus... Lyndon Johnson created the Great Society, so he was spending all sorts of money on the Great Society programs, and we were spending all the money on Vietnam. Spending and, money on both guns and butter. Right, guns <laughs> and butter, and nobody was thinking about, well, how are we going to pay for all this? And so we did, we borrowed. We borrowed a lot, and that started, that heated up inflation. A lot of inflation is too much money going after too few goods. And that's exactly what was happening during that period. And the goods we were going after was military uh, stuff, and and uh, the budgets were way out of balance. And then and then you throw on all the social programs that were being thrown on, and inflation became a very serious issue. And uh, Lyndon Johnson had inflation. Uh, Richard Nixon had inflation. Gerald Ford had inflation. He he invented whip inflation now. <laughs> whip. <laughs> that was his thing. It didn't work. <laughs> and Jimmy Carter decides he's going to pursue inflation, and he appoints Paul Volcker as chairman of the Fed in order to truly try to kill inflation. And Paul Volcker was a unique human being. Um, he was appointed in 79. I was appointed to the FJC in 78. Volcker was appointed in 79. And uh, Parker told him, you do what it takes, but kill inflation, get rid of it, uh, and I'll back you. And so that's that's what Volcker did. Um, and I could see the writing on the wall, of course. And and we had a bunch of banks that we knew were going to fail if Volcker, if Volcker really did bear down on on the, the the banks and the economy by raising interest rates. So make it make the connection because herein lies, I think, a, a parallel to what we're seeing today. Um, not apples to apples entirely, but related. Paul Volcker, head of the Fed, nineteen seventy nine. He's going after inflation, and some of his anti inflationary measures. Part of that on the on the monetary system, you're raising interest rates, right? As a result, it's going to create some problems for those for those banks, and that, of course, would bring in uh, you as a member of the FDIC board. To have that right, how 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 did it Volcker's conduct as a, a, and the leading the Fed impact the banks back in the period you're describing? Well, it, it had a large impact. By the way, he wasn't raising interest rates. Oh, that's right. Raising interest rates, he was tightening the supply of money. He was the the Fed had been issuing way 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 too much money, and there were too few goods to buy, because we were spending a lot of goods a lot of money on on war machine, and so consumers in this country 
you know, it was very hard to find the goods they wanted because so much of the of the product was going to the Vietnam War, and and there was lots of money being thrown at it. But then Volcker comes along in '79 and said, "I'm going to start tightening the amount of money that you have to spend," and uh, he did. He, he raised interest rates. Probably around eight percent was what the rates were when I joined the FDIC board, and it went up to twenty one and a half percent prime rate. Twenty one and a half percent prime rate. Now, that makes our inflation problems look pale by comparison. If we're sitting at, you know, we're talking about between five and six percent. Exactly. This, I mean, the, the Fed just went over the five percent line uh, recently, and and we think it's a great big deal, but it really isn't. Um, compared to what we've been through, um, and and it was it was um, it was such a an exciting time to be in in Washington for me, and I was in, I was responsible for the FDIC, and I and all of the thrifts were in trouble because they had they, all of their loans were relatively low interest rate fixed rate loans. They make a mortgage loan to somebody for seven percent or eight percent, thirty-year duration, and Volcker's raising interest rates to twenty-one and a half percent. And what is the bank going to do? First of all, how are they going to how are they, they going to keep their 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 deposits? Their deposits were leaving because money market funds were coming in and paying much much higher rates than banks were allowed to to pay and thrifts were allowed to pay. So one of the first things we had to do. The bank, the regulators, we had a depository institutions deregulation committee, and we had to deregulate the banking industry, particularly the the amount of interest they paid, uh, because nobody would give them any any deposits if they kept on paying five percent interest. Right, so they had to be able to compete; otherwise, they lose the deposits. The banks would would fail. So you had to so, allow them that flexibility. So they raised their rates to whatever they needed to to keep the money, but they couldn't raise the interest rate on their loans. Their loans were fixed rate loans at seven percent or eight percent interest, and so they the banks were paying and the thrifts were paying, let's say, thirteen percent interest rates to fund loans that are paying seven percent. That doesn't money, money well. loser. <laughs> that doesn't work very well. So how do you deal with that problem, Bill? Because, you know, herein lies a, a description of banks making a bet where they're paying out at a higher interest rate uh, than the rates that they're taking in, uh, not unlike what we're seeing of late with Silicon Valley, banks collapse and, and, and First Republic Bank, right? That they basically, you know, bet on low interest rates and didn't anticipate that rates would would climb as they did back what you're describing the period where Volcker was chair of the Fed and 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 increasing interest rates to, to deal with a similar well, problem inflation well a similar problem but different in an important way okay what the banks got and the SNLs got caught up back then was that the government had told them you cannot pay more than five percent let's say for your deposits. And you can't charge more than 7% or 8%, whatever, for your loans. And so you sort of got a built-in profit there. You, you're told what you can pay for uh, charge for loans. You're told what you can pay for deposits. And it works. Everybody's happy. It doesn't take a lot of brains to do that. Okay? It doesn't. I mean, you just 
that's what the government tells you your 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 playground is. But then, in the middle of the night, <laughs> you're told, "Uh oh, this isn't working anymore because we've got all this inflation, and we're going to have to raise rates really high in order to kill that inflation." So you're going to have to be ready to pay whatever it takes to keep your money because we have money market funds now that are coming into existence and they're going to take all of your money they can take if you don't up your up your ante and pay more for those deposits and that's what they did and and the banks were suffering severely they were having a liquidity run because they they were losing their deposits to the money market funds they couldn't do anything about it and 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 their 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 income was fixed. They were charging seven percent for their loans. They couldn't raise it. It was a thirty-year commitment, so it was no fault of the banks or the SNLs. That's what they were told they had to do by the government. So the government, of course, changed the rules because it had to, with all this deficit spending and the and the very high interest rates. Um, the the government was going to have to respond to that and let the banks pay up for their deposits and and it takes a long time to get to to get the income right on the other side of the balance sheet because you can't just tell somebody they got a 30 year contract you're going to yeah. abrogate it i mean if, this, if my bank came to me and said hey my 30 year fixed uh, mortgage is not going to be at that amazing rate i got 4 years ago but now has to is variable and is going to be today's interest rates. I I'd, I'd be very happy. You say, you say okay, Mr. Banker. I I understand. Take my <laughs> exactly. No chance of that. Yeah, I call my lawyer. I, now, I now today we're in a different situation because we've been deregulated on interest rates for a long time now. So a banker that maybe was uh, loading up on low rate fixed mortgages or government debt. They were when who they were buying fixed rate bonds or debt, and they had very low rate deposits. Deposits were almost free, okay, and that's the way it was for a number of years, thanks to the Fed and and, and its monetary policies, which were sorely mistaken. But anyway, they did that, and and so the banks. Thought well, why why wouldn't I just load up on all these government bonds at uh, uh, at three uh, percent interest rates because I'm funding them for a half a percent. Great margin. Great margin. There's no risk. The government bonds are are risk free. Governments aren't going to default. And the government's been telling you to buy them. They've been encouraging yeah. it. Yeah, and there and and there's there's no problem because the government um, the government will never default, right? Okay, so you've got a built in. Let's say a three percent margin. It can't lose. It's a sure bet. But the problem is, the government couldn't keep that up because we were in an inflationary environment. People were spending more and more and more money every time the president turned around. And there were about four presidents in a row who did this. Every time they turned around, they had another trillion dollar bill for something that they thought the government that the, that the people had to have. We did, if we could only spend two or three billion dollars for this, everything will be well. We'll all be in heaven. And so we start doing that. What do the markets do? Well, the Fed tries to keep that down. They try to pretend like it's not happening. But eventually, they have no choice. They've got to acknowledge 
that there's way, way too much money chasing way, way, way too few goods. And, and you know, we're, taking, we're sending all of our manufacturing out of the country, uh, letting other countries do it. And, and so anyway. So you, you, you hit on a couple of things, you know, maybe it's a good point to migrate to today's challenges. Again, we're with Bill Isaac, former chair of the FDIC from 1981 to 1985, and a, a thought leader on these subjects, which have, no longer limited to those interested in working in the world of finance, but actually our general population become all too familiar with these issues with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank, Signature Bank as well. As we need to be in, in Washington here, Bill, and so naturally the discussion always turns to who is to blame for this challenge. So listening to you just over the past few minutes, certainly the, the Fed produced a policy here where they were asking this to happen in terms of just continue to artificially keep these interest rates low and the federal, the, the fiscal policy we kept on spending and spending. So there's all this money around. Um, and so of course that's going to be inflationary. But there's another piece of this, which I love for you to expand upon bill, which is the regulators role here, the regulators, whether it's Silicon Valley bank or first Republic bank could have looked into these. They had the authority to look into these banks and to see that they were overexposed, not diversified enough on these sorts of treasuries where they're just, the whole play is they're going to get 3% for however long. And they were completely um, exposed to the possibility that interest rates could rise. And what seemed like a really good bet could end up resulting in a bank that uh, was going to fail. Give us your take on on the regulator's role here, be it the Fed or the FDIC, for that matter. Well, there there are lots of people to blame, and who and who are to blame. Um, I would say, in the first instance, um, the Congress for spending money that we don't have. Um, you know, when, when Ronald Reagan was president, he did care about how much money we were spending. And he and he did focus on that. And he supported Paul Volcker, who was trying to control monetary policy so that we would bring inflation to an end. Um, and so the government was doing a, a great job that was doing a job that it absolutely had to do in order to get this under control and make a better life. And And let me just tell you that who suffers when we have inflation? It's not you. It's not me, primarily. It's people who can't afford it. And, you know, I, I can go out and make more money if I need to. Um, and or, or if I'm if I'm Warren Buffett, <laughs> I, I don't need to worry about money at all. I have more money than I could possibly spend in 16 lifetimes. So. Those are not the people who get hurt by inflation. The people who get hurt by inflation are the lower income folks and the middle income folks. Um, they can't do anything about it. They've got to buy the goods. You know, they got to feed their family. They got to put shoes on and and all this sort of stuff. They've got to educate their children to the extent they can, and and they do, really don't have a choice. They have to spend money. And when the rates, uh, the, the costs go up, 
they spend more money. Right, because they're, they're living on, based on their wages, not like Warren Buffett and everybody else who, you know, the markets are giving them their return and they're playing the market so they're doing well no matter what. You know, the wages have not kept a pace with inflation. I think is the point that, you're, you're getting at. Exactly. And that's what really, really, really aggravates me because when when these people today are saying, well, we need to throw another trillion dollars on this or that, they are they are hurting the very people that we should be trying to help. The people who are in the lower and middle income groups, they, they they can't afford the inflation you're imposing on them when you spend money that you don't have. So anyway, I think that, that you said, who's, who's at fault? I would, in the first instance, I would blame the Congress for, for losing control of the federal budget. And when, when Clinton was president, Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House. And so Clinton, I mean, Clinton, when he first came in, wanted to spend a lot of money. But Gingrich said, not going to happen. He, the Republicans won the election in 96, I believe it was. Correct. And, and Gingrich said, was contacted America. Yeah, yep. and, and Gingrich said, not going to happen on my watch. I'll work with you, but we're going to work together to get this budget under control. And so they did. And when Clinton left office at the in, in, in 2000, he had almost, he and, and Gingrich were working very hard and, and almost achieving a balanced budget. A couple of years it was balanced. And, and, and the federal debt, when Clinton hung it up and left office, was $5.6 trillion. $5.6 trillion. And 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 I was at meetings in in Europe at the time when people were speculating that the U.S. was likely going to eliminate its budget deficits entirely at the rate they were going. And what would the world be like without dollars in circulation from the U.S.? Right, yeah, it was you were concerned about the opposite effect, right? By yes. by, by not having debt, we, we don't have debt. Our debt. So how are we gonna? How are we gonna? How are we going to tra do international transactions without dollars to trade? And and so it was, you know, those there were those, those kinds of issues. Those are wonderful issues to have, by the way. Yeah, no doubt. But but you're saying five trillion then, and where where are we today, Bill? Well, we're at uh, thirty two trillion on the federal debt. Plus, when Paul Booker was chairman of the Fed, all that time when we're doing all these problems, he's doing with all these problems and and everything. Well, I mean, we were spending. Billions and billions of dollars trying to fix all the problems in the system. The Federal Reserve had a had debt on its balance sheet at a maximum of eight hundred billion dollars. Eight hundred billion dollars was the Federal Reserve's debt on its balance sheet. Today, that debt is has been around nine trillion dollars. The Fed has had nine trillion dollars of debt. Never had more than eight hundred billion when when Volcker was alive, hmm. and so and you count you that add, debt separately than the national debt at thirty two trillion dollars. So you add the national debt and the Fed debt together, you have forty one trillion dollars, forty one trillion dollars of debt at the federal level, and I mean that's that's just unheard of. Well, let, let, and, I want to talk. People in the Congress right now are saying. 
oh, we don't worry about it. Oh, and you have this newspaper columnist who go on names in the New York Times. Hey, there's no such thing as too much debt. It doesn't matter. So uh, that's where I want to go to next because <laughs> the contrast between where the United States was at the end of the reign of Volcker and, and obviously Greenspan's period, and then you get to what you were describing the 1990s with President Clinton in office and Speaker Gingrich uh, and their ability to work together. It was uh, oftentimes more confrontational than cooperative, but the result was, as you described, uh, lowest levels of debt. Certainly we've seen in the, in, in, in the past you know, 30 plus years. We're on the cusp here of a, of a debt ceiling showdown. Speaker McCarthy has passed a uh, piece of legislation in the House of Representatives that demonstrates where Republicans are willing to go in order to raise the debt ceiling. And of course, the strings attached are reducing spending on the uh, discretionary side for the, for the most part. Uh, to date, President Biden has been unwilling to engage Republicans, that is Speaker McCarthy, on this. And at the same time, we have Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, Yellen saying that she's going to, she's employing um, these extraordinary measures uh, and that in the absence of doing so, that is raising the debt ceiling, putting our economy at risk. Given your understanding of all the different ways in which debt threatens the health of our economy, but also uh, the full faith and credit and what that means, how do you look at the showdown here? And do you think the approach that Speaker McCarthy is taking um, by trying to uh, drive the debt ceiling, uh, leverage that as a way to negotiate with President Biden and his White House on federal spending is a, is a sound approach uh, in terms of dealing with, with these challenges. What do you say, Bill? Well, I, I will, I'm, I will blame both parties for letting the debt get out of control because it has, there've been four presidents since 2000, since Clinton, four presidents, two Republicans and two Democrats. And none of the four has exercised restraint on spending. And it sort of, it's sort of in each one gets worse than the one before. And the current president, I, I mean, I've, I just, it just blows my mind. I can't, I can't imagine how we could possibly justify spending that much money that we don't have. And, um, it is, we've, we've got to fix it. There, there is no, there's no solution to this. We can't just let it go. We're, we have, we have a worse balance sheet than Greece has. So, and it so, to make fun of the pigs, right. Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. Right. We used to make fun of the pigs. We're the biggest hog of all right now. In terms of the debt they're carrying and the debt we all carry. So does that mean you think it's appropriate to draw the line on raising the debt ceiling until there's an agreement on spending, that is to reduce spending? I, I First of all, I don't get paid to sit there in the, in the Congress and, and have these negotiations and try to figure out what's the right thing to do. Uh, and I, I know they've got a, they've got a tough, tough job and, and frankly, they've made it even harder. Um, but 
I, I don't know how they could, I don't know how you could be an elected official in this country, in the Congress, and not think that you have an, an obligation to your country, to your children and grandchildren, to fix this, this debt level that is way beyond anything should be. And I mean, I, I think of Paul Volcker all the time because I, I work closely with him for a long time. And even after we were out of office, I used, I used to go visit him in New York a lot. Um, and he, he spent a few years dying of cancer and I used to go see him all the time. And he, and he, he, he always was talking about the things that we're doing wrong and how, how can we do this? How can they do this? Mm. And, and, you know, he spent his, he spent his, he put everything on the line to bring this debt under control and he did it. And the country went through amazing pain. All the foreclosures, all of the farms that, people, that farmers had to give up. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the, all the third world debt that, that had, all these countries were suffering under. And there was so much pain that we went through in the decade of the 80s, primarily. Um, and, and Volcker used to, used to walk around. I mean, he used to have armed guards around him. Mm. He, he couldn't, he couldn't walk out to get the U S fiscal house in order. And, and, and the point is it's, it's kind of squandered it, not kind of squandered it. it We we did all this hard work for, for the, for 15, 20 years. And, and, and so many people suffered because of the, the, the bankruptcies that, that existed all over the place, all over the country. And just when, when we hit the 2000 mark, I, I, we 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 just lost it, and and even you know Gingrich and and Clinton had made their 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 peace, and they worked together to get rid of almost all the debt, and now it's so high you can't even imagine it. I I, I don't know, and I don't know how these these members of Congress can say this is not a problem, or the New York Times guy could say this is this is not a problem. I I don't understand where they have this notion, how they get this. Well, I'll pursue one, one notion that doesn't come from the New York Times, uh, but comes from the Wall Street Journal, uh, a publication perhaps, um, you know, you, you, you view as, as, as trusted on, on these issues. And then I want to get to the uh, moral hazard issue, and we'll have to wrap up here in just a minute. But, but one argument that's out there, I don't know to, whether I find it persuasive, but I know it's out there, which says we should no longer measure our debt based on our ability to pay it down to zero, and therefore the 41, 40 plus trillion dollar number you got to, if you combine our national debt and the debt that the Fed carries, that's not the way to think about it, the argument goes. Rather, the way to think about it is whether or not we have enough revenue, have enough funds to pay down the interest on the debt. You know, for example, a homeowner who might have a half a million dollars a mortgage. They're not in a position to pay down as that homeowner, the mortgage on that, right? The loan, the half a million dollar loan. What the bank looks at, right, is their ability to pay the mortgage. Maybe you need to be able to, they have to have confidence that you could pay down enough assets to pay down you know, the mortgage plus whatever. You take that concept could you apply it to the way we ought to think about a national debt if that's the case then what you really have to focus on is our ability 
to have enough revenue and the economic engine to be strong enough just to pay down the financing, right, of, on the debt. What do you think of that argument, Bill? Obviously, uh, you, you don't share the view, but I'm look, look, looking looking for you to break it down. Um, no, I don't share the view. Um, the problem is they don't even have enough money to pay the interest. There you go. Unless they keep the interest rates so low, close to zero. And then, yeah, you can pay the interest on it. But when the interest rate goes up to something more normal, well, let, let's take right now. Right now, the interest rates are up to 5%, and people are screaming. Look what you're doing to us. We can't pay our debts. We can't. And, 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 that's, and that's it. That's it. 5%? It went up to 21% under Volcker. And so, uh, you know, it, 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 the reason why we have an overheated economy and so much money being spent on so many things that we don't need is because the powers that be are keeping interest, have been keeping interest rates for the past 20, well, 10 years, at least 15 years. They've been keeping the interest rates at close to zero. Right. All over the world, everybody's got zero percent interest rates. That's not that's not real. That's phony accounting. And there and there has to be there has to, there has to be a, a comeuppance. I mean, you, right. you can't do that forever. It doesn't work because no. there's no restraint on spending when you have interest rates at zero. And we're seeing that now. All right, let's go. Last question. We'll jump to the lightning round. You <laughs> wrote a, a very interesting. Uh, opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, sticking with the journal here, here on the opinion pages. But before I was talking about an article I had read uh, on the uh, on the financial section, uh, this was uh, just the beginning of the spring where you're writing about the FDIC has a proven way to avoid moral hazard. And here is where you outline that FDIC, of course, is responsible to protect depositors, but up to a certain amount. Um, the depositors who put in more than the quarter million dollars that the FDI insure, FDIC insures, you know, what is what risk are they taking on exactly, right? And and in the case of the Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank, um, the government has gone ahead and and insured the deposits of any amount, including those who uh, put in beyond the quarter million dollar cap and uh, you know that that kind of, in your your judgment, is kind of triggers the, this moral hazard where they're going to be more risky than they otherwise should because they're relying on the government to bail them out. Let me know if I got that right. And then what happened? What you used in the 1980s where you addressed this issue where on the one hand you balanced, you know, kind of took care of the macroeconomic concerns, but at the same time didn't let these risky depositors off the hook entirely. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that, it's it's a when when we went to a deposit insurance system, Franklin Roosevelt was opposed to it, and he was opposed to it because he said, if we insure deposits, that's going to destroy discipline in the banking system, and and uh, because and we need depositors to to constrain banks, and you you can only get my money. I'm I'm rich. I know what I'm doing. You can't have my money unless you are a good bank. You're not taking excessive risk. And so if you if you make depositors whole, even the folks who are perfectly rich and knowledgeable and don't need to be protected, 
um, if you protect them too, then they have no incentive not to take bigger and bigger risks because there's there's no they don't pay for it. Both they, the depositor and the bank, right? <laughs> the banks take more risk and the depositors take more risk. And we're in the kind of situation we're in today. And, and so Franklin Roosevelt didn't like that at all. And they finally compromised on a system that would pay people who really needed the money and couldn't have didn't have enough knowledge and information to know the difference between a good bank and a bad bank. We'd protect the ordinary citizen. And at the beginning, that was $5,000 per person. And by the time they went public with it, it was about $10,000 per person. And, and then it kept on going up and up and up. When I was chairman, it was 100000 per depositor. And today, it's $250,000 per depositor. I'm not upset about those increases because they're still within the range of reason. But Silicon Valley Bank had depositors that had tens of millions of dollars in Silicon Valley Bank, and they knew perfectly well what was going on in that bank. They couldn't. They couldn't help but know. Um, and 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 yet we were we protected them. And and I'm not going to claim that everything was all wonderful when I was chairman of the FDIC because the FDIC had been on this path for a long time, and and it got it 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 really got to the point where the FDIC didn't have a lot of choices um, because discipline was not existing very much when I was chairman of the FDIC. But I tried to do it. We, we developed a thing called a modified payout. And ba basically that says if you if you have 100000 or less in the bank, you're protected 100%. If you have more than that, we're going to, we're going to pay you up front 80% when the bank fails. We'll give you 80% of your deposit. The other 20%, you're going to wait to see how we do on collections. And if we collect it all, you get to your other 20%. If you if you collect half of it, you get another 10%. But you don't get a free ride. Okay? And we used that once, and it worked. Um, we were not able to keep on using it, though, because shortly after we used it once, we get hit with the failure of Continental Illinois, which was the sixth largest bank in the country. And one thing you had there is 300 correspondent banks. What's a correspondent bank is a bank that has its deposits with a larger bank, okay? And they had 300, Continental Illinois had 300 correspondent banks that had vast amounts of money at Continental, way over the insurance limit. Are you going to give them a loss? Are you going to take that money from them? If you do, what's going to happen to those 300 communities? It goes all the way down. Yeah, it, it's horrible, and so um, that's that's why we couldn't. And and then and, and that's just that part of it. Then you've got a whole bunch of businesses that have a lot of money in Continental, and they use it for payroll. So if you right. take that money from them, what are you going to do? Are you going to are you going to say they can't make their payrolls? And then you, that's the contagion moment, right? That's the one where you have to contagion. It's 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 awful. It's it's a depression, and so. I have been arguing we need to come up with ideas for how to impose losses on the biggest, most sophisticated depositors without shutting down the economy, right. without destroying 300 communities, without taking all the payroll accounts from people. And there are ways to do that. For example, one of the thing, one of the ideas I'm promoting, if we have 
payroll accounts, or let's say business business demand accounts, they're, they're checking accounts, business checking accounts that don't pay interest. So you don't, those, that's not high risk money. It's it's not money that's reaching for return and taking the big it's risk. It's a checking account. We're, it's we're a checking account. It's just helping people with their finances day to day, their payroll accounts and all that stuff. Okay. I, I would recommend that we that we that we pay those a hundred cents on a dollar. I don't care how big it is. Right. No, not trying to, it doesn't matter. It's the nature of the holding account. Yeah. No, it's 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 money that is used to keep the economy going, and it's not abusing anything because it's not getting paid interest. So let it let it get paid in full, and that would be a huge improvement. Yeah, in that, the would, that would certainly kind of adjust the moral hazard concern and ensure that. You know, if the purpose of the account of the deposit is as you described, then 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 it's the, the sort of thing where uh, the federal government is appropriately insuring. Whereas for other forms of deposits, higher risk, uh, then the federal government should not provide uh, the insurance there, certainly beyond this this minimal. minimal that, that's, that's right, and that that would that would. There are other suggestions I have. That I don't need to go into all the detail, but I'm just saying. There are ways we can we can tailor this deposit insurance system so it so it is workable so that you can impose losses on people who should have losses imposed on them without destroying the economy or hurting all sorts of innocent people. Bill, we're going to wrap up our conversation with our lightning round. Here's where you share with our viewers and listeners your favorite Reagan speech quote and book. Give us all three, two, or just one. What do you have to share with us today? Well. <laughs> I, I I don't know about a speech. I mean, there's, there's so many things he did. The one that just always sticks in my mind is him saying in Berlin, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I mean, I, 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 that, it's always in my head. I always remember that. And, and it, was, it was amazing. And he had so many of those kinds of things that he did. Um, and, I, and I loved, I, I, one of the things I loved about him was, was his sense of humor. Uh, and it was it was fun having a, a president like him. And I, I remember he I was in the in the FDIC. I was right across the street from the White House, across 17th Street. It was the old executive office building right across the street, and then behind that was the White House. And there's so many things that I that I just really remember from those days. But one of them was Valentine's Day. Hmm. I was out for a walk on on 17th Street. When the president's limo and all these motorcycles and everything come up, and they stop right on the corner near near my office, and president gets out and goes into a, a shop and buys a, a birthday, I mean a Valentine's Day card for Nancy, and I, I mean it's, it's that kind of stuff. You just you know you just can't make it up. It's it's it was such it's such energy and such fun, and you you really you really believed in America, and that's what's missing right now. Humor, fun, optimism, goodness, that, that, that's the sort of thing that really uh, makes a difference. Bill Isaac, wonderful having you on the show. Look forward to having you back another time. Thank you. Enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. 